Thank you, cowboy. <laughs> I just I can't help it. Oh, it's it's a great hat though. I'm kind of jealous. That's part of why I'm making fun of him. Like, yeah, it's pretty slick. And at the outdoor service, <laughs> wish I would have had it on. It was cold at 7 a.m. outside. So be thankful you're at the nine. It was chilly. Um, all right. Well, welcome. My name is Brett Johnson. I'm uh, I'm lead pastor elder here, and uh, glad to have you with us. Often at VBC to kind of get our our brains kind of you know awakened from the the you know slumber you know, that we're in, I will ask a question to kind of get us kind of rolling. So today I'm going to kind of do two questions and kind of have these kind of mashed together. The first question is this, which is probably a question we've asked before. It's a kind of a broad question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are, what are you after? Like kind of what are your goals? What are you seeking after, right? So that's the first question, but I want to take that question and I want to kind of put it next to slash kind of mash together with this other question is, what happens when God interrupts what you are seeking with something that you didn't ask for? Okay? So, you know, we all have these things that we're after, whether it's success or fulfillment or pleasure or relief or whatever it may be. There's all these different things that we are seeking after. You know, I even think about Jesus' words, come to me all who are weary right? We want rest, tired. And those aren't bad things. What are we seeking? But what happens when, when God shows up and does something other than what you asked him for? So that's part of what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're, we're continuing our series on John. We specifically tried to engineer the schedule so that we would be at the resurrection this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 19. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to be in John 19, 38 to start, um, and we're going to be working our way through. And again, I'm trying to include these little kind of uh, explanatory nuggets as we're going. Um, I am like mildly bilingual, um, so I have a, a little bit of uh, you know, Spanish in my background. So we have a lot of Latino families who are part of our area, who are part of our church. So one of the things I'm doing a little bit of these days, because I, I have some uh, ability to articulate some Spanish, is we're adding in some little Spanish points, you know, along with our uh, English points. So just know that we'll be doing that. So if you hear some Spanish from up here, you'll know what's happening. Um, so, and, and Lord willing, we'll have more Spanish music and all of that. If you're at the Good Friday service, had a, one of our, one of our uh, Latino brothers, Sergio, did a beautiful job reading, reading the text with some, in, in Espanol. It was muy bonita. Uh, anyway, so we are in John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. And again, right before this, we just preached last week the crucifixion, right? The crucifixion of Jesus where this kind of strange phenomenon, here we are, the, the church, we're, we're all about Jesus, we love Jesus, and yet we still celebrate his death, right? So we preached that last week because his payment for sin, where he says it is finished, where he, right, where he bears the sin of the world and he beholds the shame of humanity and the pain and the grief of humanity, right? That he breaks our uh, sin's hold on us. He's, he did all of that in last week's work, last, last week's sermon, right? So this week we're jumping in right as that uh, passage ends where you see um, the word pierced, right? Where they look on him whom they have pierced. So we have Three things we're going to see this morning. The first reality that we're going to see is a body buried, a body buried. Look at verse 38. Let me read through the end of the chapter. After these things, talking about the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body 
of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is our first portion of Scripture. So a body buried. So what we see here is this important detail. So it's interesting, you think about the Apostles' Creed is something we're going to confess later, right, where we talk about he, he, he died, was crucified, and was buried, right? That he's buried as a part of this theme of what's happening. You have these, these men, this interesting kind of nugget here of Joseph of Arimathea, who we see here in the other Gospels, and we see Nicodemus, both of whom are probably members of the Sanhedrin. They're part of the kind of Jewish council. They have authority and position and prominence and wealth, and these men are leveraging all of those things and taking a major risk, even doing this in the cover of night, to go secretly and ask for the body of Jesus. They are showing their allegiance. They are showing their affection for the body of Christ, for Christ himself. They are taking this body and they're burying it. So this is, again, these are kind of the historical important details that we have a body buried. You have Joseph and Nicodemus, and interestingly, Nicodemus, right, from chapter three, where he's telling Jesus about or excuse me, Jesus is telling him about the new birth, about how to be born again, about um, eternal life, and Nicodemus is having a hard time wrapping his brain around that. And so we don't see Nicodemus again until we see him here, where he shows back up, where we see his love and his commitment to Christ, risking, right? They, the, Jesus was crucified for blasphemy, for betraying his own people, and so he is, is in, you know, this is a dangerous body to pursue, to care for. And yet that's exactly what they do. And then look at the little note here where it says that Nicodemus in verse 39 comes with 75 pounds of spices. This was uh, not uncommon when you had a prominent uh, person, especially in Jewish culture, to lavish their bodies with uh, large amounts. I mean, think about 75 pounds of spices. That is a lot of spices, but to lavish these bodies with these kinds of spices to preserve and to care for them, to honor them. So we see this body being buried where they are risking their own necks, risking their own reputations in order to care and love for Jesus. Again, this is kind of a, it feels a little peripheral, but it's actually critical for us that we understand kind of the, how the story unfolds of how it is that Jesus even fulfills Isaiah 53. Right, we read Isaiah 53 last week. Isaiah 53, 9 says he was with a rich man in his death. Again, 700 years before Jesus, there's this, you know, this beautiful you know, uh, suffering servant song in Isaiah that we preached, right? We, we preached through Isaiah. You have this whole description, and then you see Jesus fulfilling this thing out to the T, even in the way in which he is buried. So they, they carefully take his body at their own cost to themselves, and own risk to themselves. And they bury him in this very expensive tomb. These tombs are not easy to come by, and so this is a generous and lavish act that they're doing. So the first thing we see is a body buried. Okay. In Spanish, that's un cuerpo enterado. Un cuerpo enterado, right? So the second thing we're going to see is a body sought. A body sought. When we gathered for the first service, 
So I don't know if it's like this everywhere in the world, but it is in Radford. There's birds everywhere, right? You roll down your window. I remember a scene from a Chevy Chase movie where he moves out to the country. I think it's Funny Farm. He moves out to the country, and he opens the window, and there's birds chirping, and he's like, oh, it's so lovely. And then about an hour later, it's it keeps chirping, keeps chirping. Anyway, we have tons of birds. So we're sitting there for the outdoor service. We're sitting down, and we're enjoying the bird song, and we look up, and there's vultures <laughs> circling, right? And I said, kind of, you know, they, people didn't know what the sermon was going to be, but I said, they're looking for the body, right? They're seeking, you know, even the, the disciples as they go, they're seeking this body, a body sought. Look at, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, meaning Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, like Jesse down the aisle. They were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes." A body sought. So, so what we see here is we see Mary on the first day of the week, which, by the way, we are not a people who worship on Saturdays. Why? Why do we not participate in the Sabbath practice that has always been the Sabbath practice of the people of God, which was Saturday worship? Why do we worship on Sundays? This is a valid question. It's a fair question. Why is Sundays the day that we gather? Today is the reason why we worship on Sunday mornings, that we're a resurrection people. We're a people who on the first day of the week, on Sunday, right, you had Friday, he is crucified. That's day one. Day two, Saturday takes place. Day three, Sunday happens. So three days, right? So the third day, Sunday morning, we're a people. Every time we gather, we are gathering, commemorating, rejoicing, celebrating, right? We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. So we don't gather on Saturdays. We gather on the day where everything changed, Sunday morning. And so what we see is we have this picture of Mary Magdalene who is seeking the body, right? A body sought, un cuerpo buscado, a body sought. She is seeking to go, and I, you know, I, I actually misquoted this last service, right? We go look at the other accounts. Mary is doing two things. One account says she's going to see the tomb, right? Another one says she's going to anoint the body, right? She's going to do both of those things. But part of it's like, okay, what is Mary going to do? Because who is going to roll away the stone? They even say this in one of the other accounts. Who's going to roll away this massive stone? Because Mary ain't going to do it, right? But she's going anyway, because Mary is wanting to do something to, to pour out her grief and her love for Jesus. She is seeking the body of Jesus. And look at verse 2. So she ran uh, excuse me, she, she noticed that the, the stone had been taken away. And so she ran. Look what she says in verse 2. They have taken the Lord 
out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So think of this, all right? Here's Mary, which we're going to talk a little bit more about Mary in a second, but you have Mary who loves Jesus. She's just watched her friend and her teacher, the most beloved person she has in her life, was just crucified two days earlier, right? Just crucified, just Friday. Think, think about what you're doing on Friday night. I was in here, 7 p.m., Friday night. We were, we were doing the Good Friday service, which was gorgeous, beautiful celebration of what Jesus has done for us. That was not that long ago. She has just had the most traumatic event of her entire life, watching her king be crucified. And then she goes and goes to grieve in, at the tomb, and she gets to the tomb, and she thinks they've stolen his body. Grave robbers have taken the body of Jesus. Hear me, grave robbing, as weird as that sounds, is not an uncommon practice, even still. So she thinks somebody has taken Jesus' body. So you're already in grief, you're already weeping, you're already mourning, so she's going there seeking out that she might kind of weep over and care for the body of Jesus, and the body is gone. So what does she do? She runs. She runs to her brothers, to Peter and to John. She says, they've taken him. They've taken his body. They shamed him in crucifixion. Now they're shaming him in death. They've taken the body of Jesus. And so Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb, and John wins, right? You had Brenda there saying, come on, John, faster. Hustle. Hustle. Come on. You got to get there. Slackers, you know? So they, they hustle to the tomb. I, again, these are funny details that are in here. John sharing. Yeah, Peter tried to beat me, but I beat him. I got him. So John gets there. Look what it says. And stooping to look in. So he didn't go in the tomb. John gets there first, but he doesn't look in. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there and did not go in. Why these details? And then Simon Peter talks about seeing the face covering, right? The details are important here because what we're seeing here is when you have a grave robbery, which Mary did not look in when she first went in, right? She just, she just saw that the stone had been rolled away and that Jesus' body was gone, so she runs back and doesn't see the details. But they're noting, listen, all, his, his, the linen claws are still laying in there. If there's a grave robber, they come, and they're not kind of taking their time and being real neat. They're going to smash and grab, right? They're going to go in there, and they're going to they're stir things up. They're going to take whatever's valuable. They're going to get out of there. Well, they don't, they don't take anything, right? The only thing that's missing is the body. So we're seeing that... If, if this had been a grave robbery, if someone had taken the body, then these linen claws would not have been so carefully taken care of, and yet that's exactly what we see. And I love that we see that John gets there first, but John, being John and not being Peter, he doesn't go in, but Peter, being Peter, just goes right in. That's Peter. He's like, oh yeah, of course, I'm going to go in there. John's like, oh, we should go in there. Peter's like, oh yeah, I cut people's ears off, you know, I do all kinds of stuff. You know, Peter just, he don't play, right? So he just, he just barges his way in there. And then he sees this other little comment about his face covering being laid over and neatly folded in the corner. This is not the work of messy grave robbing. Something else is happening. And then John, we get a little little whisper here in in verse 8, the other disciple who reached the tomb first, he makes that note again, also went in and saw and believed. We don't fully know what John believed, but we know something is stirring. John's, John's starting to see something's going on. We're seeking this body, but it ain't here. Something's happening. 
So we see that he believed, and look at verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. So he's believing, but they don't quite get it yet, which is one of the things I love about the disciples is there's grace for us. God is not asking you to understand all things. He's basically saying, you need to trust me, and there's going to be things you don't understand. There's going to be things you see that don't make sense to you, and that's okay. You, You need to trust me. And so we see a body buried, un cuerpo enterado, a body sought, un cuerpo buscado, right? And then we see this last part. Look at verse 11. This gets into our third section. Let me read this last part for us. We'll do verses 11 through 18. That'll be all we're going to cover this morning. So they see, in verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes. So Mary, we see here we go in verse 11, has come back to the tomb. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciple, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the end of the word of the Lord this morning. So we have a body buried, un cuerpo enterado, a body sought, un cuerpo buscado. And then we have this. We have this account of of Mary. I want you to picture again, this is Mary Magdalene. We don't know a ton about Mary, but we know one thing for sure, this specific detail mentioned in Luke, that when Jesus met her, she had seven demons living in her. She's, She's this woman who's overcome, and the word we use is possessed by evil spirits. You look at the other characters, if you read the gospel accounts of those possessed by evil spirits, and it's a disturbing picture that we see, and even how people orient to those kinds of folks, right? We have the guy kind of meandering among the tombstones, they're kind of outcasts of their society, and yet Jesus goes to Mary, and he delivers her from her bondage to these evil spirits, and she becomes one of the kind of, right, these disciples who are following after Jesus. Think of this. This is, this is the moment of human history where, where God comes and does something completely unexpected, even though he's described to all the disciples what's going to happen. He's told them, I must die and rise again. I lay down my life and I take it up again. John 10, right? He, he's told them that this is happening, and yet for them, they cannot wrap their mind around what's happening. You have Mary who's going to grieve at the tomb, seeking the body of Jesus, and she 
find something wholly other. All of human history comes and builds to this moment. And do we see what happens? Jesus doesn't show up in the marketplace. Jesus shows up in a graveyard to an outcast that he loves and delights in and knows. And it's a woman, right? A non-respected, non-influential, nobody in the worlds of the eyes, and yet this is the one that Jesus wants to initiate the turn of all human history. She came seeking the body of Jesus, and she found a body reborn. It's our third point, a body reborn. Think about this. You're going and your kind of highest aspiration, the thing that she is seeking, is to go grieve and maybe tend to the body and put some more spices on it, right? So, some, some, some ways to treat and, and, and give respect to the dead, and yet she shows up looking for the body, and there stands Jesus. She can't even see him. She can't even recognize him because she is so unexpectedly caught off a guard, what happens when God shows up and does something other than what you expected to happen? Listen, church, so often in our lives, we have these aspirations and these goals and these things that we seek that we are looking after, and most of them are pretty good things. But when God shows up to do the work that he wants to do, are we wanting to hear what he has to say and what he wants to do, or do we just kind of get fixated on our own agendas because what we see here is Mary gets it. She sees Jesus. I mean, think of this. This is, this is the moment, the moment. How many of you know someone who's come back from the dead? Quick survey, right? None of you. Even still, it's one of the criticisms of the church is that the world looking in goes, wait, 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 wait. Just just pause for a second. So Easter, Easter, resurrection, resurrection. Like, are are we serious? Whole segments of the church have just gone away from it entirely. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't an actual resurrection. It was just a metaphorical thing, a great literary device. No, church. If you've come here and you're looking for relief and you're, 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 you're looking for life and you're looking for, for you know, seven ways for a healthier marriage, all these different things, listen, the thing that God is doing is he, is he is offering us himself, the resurrected, actual flesh and blood, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. That is what he is offering us. That reality changes all other realities. Listen, you might get a better marriage, Right? He's going to do other things, but those things are here, and Jesus shows up and says, that is only part of what I'm going to do. His end game is not that you just have a healthier marriage, right, or that you have a little bit of relief for some of your pain. Sometimes we pray prayers and we say, God, will you do this thing? Take this away. And he says, no. Peter, or excuse me, uh, Paul, right? Three times I prayed that you would take this away, and he says, no. No. We're doing something else. And are we the people like Mary where we cling? Look at what happens in verse 17. I love, I love this. Sorry, this, there's so much beauty that's going on here. 
You've got Mary who is overcome with the absolute terror and grief of not only Jesus dying, his body being stolen, and Jesus, the reborn, resurrected Jesus Christ, shows up. Colossians 1.18 tells us he's the firstborn from among the dead, right? And then 1 Corinthians 15, which I wanted to read a little bit of. This is the kind of magnus opus of resurrection life in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to go read about the resurrection. Verse 20 of chapter 15, you can just listen. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, and when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Basically, the main point of 1 Corinthians 15 is Jesus raised from the dead actually and socially. Did I mention that God often does things we didn't ask for? Right? Like no person ever walks in my office and says, hey, um, I really want to be resurrected from the dead. They, they do want a lot of other things, but, I, but can you see the scale of what's happening? He is giving us new life by the work of Christ. Romans 6 says, the same spirit that raised him from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in you. Whoa. That kind of changes things. Yeah. That's Paul's whole point in Romans 6 is it really changes things. And so the moment where all of human history hinges is this moment with Mary, where God chooses not to display himself to the influential and prominent Nicodemus or the influential and prominent Joseph of Arimathea, but no, to Mary. He goes, I'm going to show the world the kind of king that I am. I'm going to show up, and in the world's eyes is a no one, and in my eyes, it's Mary calls her by name. And then look at Mary's response. She cries out, Rabboni or Rabboni. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. We don't get the picture that she's clinging, but now we know she is. So finally, he shows up. Jesus is there in the flesh, the resurrected Jesus saying, hey, I've told you about laying down my life and taking it up again. I've told you about eternal life. Well, here it is. Whoa, like you weren't playing around. So what does she do? She casts herself on Jesus and clings to him so hard, he basically is like, Mary, 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 I appreciate the affection, but I really am going to have to go here in a minute. She's like, nope, nope, no, I get you, Jesus, right? Because I have this picture when I get to heaven and I get to be with Jesus, I'm going to like, you know, like, I'm not just going to be like, oh, hey, good to meet you. I'm going to like hug him and he's going to be like, okay, Brett, that's enough. I'm like, just a few more minutes. I'm just so happy to actually be able to put my arms around you. This is so great. And that's what Mary does. But look what he says. Do not cling for me, for I have yet not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. He's basically saying, look, you, you want to cling to me and you want me to stay, but I have other work I'm going to do. One of them, obviously, is the ascension. And then she announces, I have seen the Lord. So here's my charge for us, church, is that we be a people who seek 
right? That we seek out God, that we pursue him, that, you know, those who seek find. And so we seek him out where he says, whom are you seeking? That we would seek him out, but that as we do that, that we have this submissive posture of saying, Lord, I realize that when I show up to a situation, there's more that you want to do than I can even dream or imagine. Will I be open to what God wants to do in a moment, or do I force my way and my will and brush past what God wants to do? Too often, I'm looking for my own relief, my own escape, my own enjoyment, instead of going, God, what are you doing here? Why are you working these ways? Lord, could you teach me what you're doing right here in my midst? How often do we miss what God is doing because we are so fixated on what we want to get out of it? Oh, that we would cast ourselves on Christ. Oh, that we would embrace resurrection living, which the whole portrait of Romans 6 is that now that we have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, we now become a resurrection people who live as if the resurrection has already happened because church, it has in Christ Jesus the guarantee of our own resurrection and our own life indestructible that cannot be taken. And so now we are resurrection people. We are people who confess unashamedly, boldly, yes, we believe in the physical, actual, bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is a core to our faith. We do not follow a slain Savior. We follow Jesus who lives. He is risen. He is risen. So as those who peer in and they ask, what are you about? We're about the living one. We're about Jesus. We're about his death, we're about his burial, and we're about his resurrection. He lives. He is our king, and he says, follow after me, Jesus says, and you will have life in the same way that I have life. You will have the life that we get from Jesus is the life that Jesus got from the Father. This is what he's offering us. So hear me, church. We do not get the opportunity or or get to choose whether we want to accept the resurrection. If we follow Jesus, we follow a risen Savior. And this is the very epicenter of our hope. He lives. Jesus lives. And so he invites us. He even calls us by name. The King of glory calls Mary by name. So he does. So he is. This is our King. The man of all power who can overcome death itself. 1 Corinthians 15 specifically says that the last enemy to be done away with will be death. He overcomes death itself, and even in that kind of power, he sees through it all, and he sees you, and he sees me, and he calls us by name. Man, we have a resurrected king, and we have a resurrection awaiting. I look forward, church, to see us all one day crowned in new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. The the resurrection is 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 a mystery and a wonder to us. To even find the words to describe it all properly is 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 difficult because it's so marvelous. Lord, would you give us faith to believe in the risen Jesus? Would you give us faith to hold fast to our hope 
to even embrace the promise of what the resurrection offers to us. Lord, would you give us the, the, the strength to comprehend the marvel and the wonder of the resurrection? Lord, we praise you that you're a living king, that you're a living God, and that you offer us life eternal, that we who believe in Christ, we, we also will be resurrected. How, how can that be? And yet it is. Lord, help us walk and live and move as those who follow a risen king, who have been given resurrection life already, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.